Inside of the announcement sheet, you'll find an outline that you can use as we go through this study this morning. And uh, get your Bibles out as we're going to, to be looking at Scripture this morning. Uh, as you know, we're, we're, we're looking at the Bible and the message of the Bible and getting our minds and hearts ready for a study of the entire Bible next year. And uh, what we're doing right now is kind of getting our minds around some of the basic information about the Bible, the basic message of the Bible, and these kinds of things in an effort to be prepared to launch into Genesis uh, in January and then spend the rest of the year going through the entire Bible. And I hope that uh, you're prayerful about that because it's kind of a daunting task as you think about trying to preach in 52, actually probably more like about 45 sermons, the entire uh, Bible. And so uh, be praying for me, and I think it's going to be a great year. I'm, I'm really excited about the opportunity to start in Genesis and end the year in Revelation and for us all to have crystallized in our mind and in our thinking the message of the Bible and have an idea of what every book of the Bible is about. And so this morning we're going to be thinking about the central character of the Bible, and I want us to begin with a word of prayer. Our Father... We have come out of this long, still night into the dawning light of a new day. We've come out of the homes that you have provided for us into this place of fellowship and worship. We pray as one body, as one family, Father, to be astonished in your presence and to be awed by your holiness, to be glad in your blessings and to be grateful for your forgiveness and to be hope-filled in the resurrection reality. Look with mercy on us this day in this church we love in fellowship and on the people that we love in name and prayer and in this community of San Antonio that we love and serve. Bless us this morning, O oh Father, with eyes to see and ears to hear. And we pray it in the name of Jesus and all the church said. There's a fellow that walked into his friend's used rare bookstore and he says, you know, I should have called you the other day. We were cleaning out the attic and we came across this leather-bound family Bible. just been in our family for a lot of years. Uh, it was not that great a shape, but, you know, it was printed by somebody by the name of Guten something or other. And his friend looked at him and said, are you kidding me? You have a Gutenberg Bible? Do you know that that was one of the first books ever printed? Do you know that this year a copy of one of those Gutenberg Bibles sold for over $2 million. And the guy said, well, I don't think that ours would have brought very much money. Some guy by the name of Martin Luther scribbled all over that thing in German. <laughs> you know, the moral of that story is, is that we don't always recognize what is truly priceless. We do not always recognize things, sometimes even in our hands, that are truly priceless. And that, unfortunately, is true of the Bible. You can literally have the Bible in your hands and not have the Bible in your heart. You can literally have a Bible but not really have the Bible, even though you, you have it in your hand. Now, this is one of the issues that the two fellows on the road to Emmaus after the crucifixion of Jesus in Luke 24 have. These two guys are walking the seven miles from Jerusalem to Emmaus when all of a sudden Jesus uh, joins up with them as they're talking about what had happened in Jerusalem three days earlier. And the Bible says in verse 16 that they do not recognize and that their eyes were prevented from recognizing Jesus. And as they're walking along on that road to Emmaus, Jesus asks, what in the world were you guys talking about? You seemed pretty emotional and, and, and passionate about it. 
And one of the fellows says, are you the only one? Are you not from around here? Are you some kind of a stranger or just oblivious? Do you not know what happened in Jerusalem three days ago? And Jesus says, well, why don't you enlighten me? And both of these fellows tell him about Jesus, how he was put to death, how he was this rabbi that everyone hoped would be the Messiah, that he would be the one to restore God's favor on the nation of Israel, and that Israel would be restored to its prominence and preeminence in the world. And Jesus says to them in verses 25, 26, and 27, He says, how foolish you are. And how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter His glory? And beginning, verse 27, listen to these words, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, basically Torah and and the, the rest of the Old Testament scrolls, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He explained to them what was said in all the Scriptures concerning Himself. In other words, what He's saying to these two fellows on the road to Emmaus is that you've not read... Old Testament inspired these ancient texts in such a way that you understand that what they're talking about in Scripture has to do with me. You don't understand the central character of the Old Testament. And then beginning with Moses and going all the way through the prophets, he explains what all of Scripture said about him. And while they're having dinner that night, they realize that it's Jesus and he disappears. And these two fellows look at each other. In verse 32, they say, were not our hearts burning? While, were our hearts not burning within us? While He talked with us on the road and, what's it say, church? Opened the Scripture to us. What does it mean that He opened the Scripture to them? It means that He explained the Scripture concerning Himself from Moses to the prophets to these fellows so that they could understand God's will. Understanding the Scripture as it pointed to Jesus caused their hearts to burn. As they begin to understand that the Bible is looking at a central character by the name of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Word incarnate, the Creator of the heavens and earth, their heart began to burn inside of them as they began to put the pieces together as Jesus did that for them. The same issue is in another place, in the Gospel of John, chapter 5. Jesus is trying to get the Pharisees to understand what the Scriptures are all about. And He says to them in verse 39, He says, you know, you study the Scriptures diligently, which Jesus doesn't have a problem with, but He says, you study those Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very Scriptures that what? That what, church? Testify about me. These scriptures talk about, witness to, explain, point, and instruct the mind about Jesus. You know what's happening on the road to Emmaus and what's happening in John chapter 5 is this. We can read the Bible and we can miss its central character. We can miss its core message. We can miss its core character. Now let me ask you a question. Personal question. I don't don't need a personal response, but a personal question. When you do your Bible study, when you read the Bible every day, when when you sit down to think about Scripture and you study God's Word, do you find ever that your heart begins to burn? Does your heart begin to burn as you see Jesus in the Scriptures and your mind is enlightened to the will of God as He works all of history through the cross of Jesus and the presence of His Son, the Messiah, on earth? 
Does your heart burn as the Scriptures reveal Jesus? You know, Jesus is all over the Bible. You go all the way back to the very beginning. You know the story of Adam and Eve. God creates this place called the Garden of Eden. It's a beautiful place. It's an idyllic place. It's a place where He puts the man that He has created and the woman that He has created. It's a beautiful place to sustain their life and for Christian, for, for godly, I should say, godly culture to, to flourish. And there's only one prohibition. You shall not eat of what tree, church? Tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Right? And then in chapter 3 of Genesis, I mean, right there at the very beginning of Genesis, this serpent shows up, is more cunning than all the other creatures, and he tempts Eve with these words. He says, you know, God is really not trustworthy. You don't really need to trust God. God has not told you the truth. God has told you, in fact, something that you don't need to really put a whole lot of stock in. You don't need to trust God, have confidence in God. You can go ahead and eat that fruit because God knows that when you do it, you will become like a God. And the woman looks at the fruit... It looks great to her eye. It's pleasing to her eye. So she eats it. She gives it to her husband, Adam, and he eats. And you know what happens. God confronts that situation. And there is, in chapter 3, the first preaching, I think, of the Gospel in that, you know, His heel is going to crush the woman's seed. His heel is going to crush the head of the serpent. But He is going to bruise His heel. And all of that is in light of the fact that sin and death has now entered into the world. And then we go centuries into the future. And we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane sweating those drops of blood, so anguished is He, down on His knees praying. And He's facing the greatest temptation of His life, the temptation to evade the cross. But He prays in Luke 22, verse 42, Father, if You're willing, take this cup from Me. Yet, not My will, but Yours be done. That's what He prays in that temptation, that great temptation. And so Jesus becomes the greater Adam who passes the test in the garden and defeats sin and death. But you know as well as I do that sin, like air pollution, covers everything and it corrupts everything and it's not long in the Genesis story that there is trouble again. This time it's with the boys. Cain and Abel, the sons of Adam and Eve, are upset with one another because God has regard with Abel's sacrifice because of the kind of heart that he has in offering it, but not for Cain's. Because it's second hand. And Cain doesn't like it very much that his brother has an upper hand with God, at least in his own eyes. God says, you know, you need to be careful, Cain. And Cain just ignores it. But Cain is furious and he's jealous and he's angry with Abel and he kills Abel, his own brother. The first murder in all of history happens right there in the Bible. And God confronts Cain and says, where's your brother? And Cain says, I'm not my brother's keeper. Who knows? And God says to him, I know where he is because I hear the voice of his blood crying up from the ground for justice. You know, in the Jewish mind, they knew what spilt blood on the ground, what it was crying up to God when that blood had been spilt in injustice and in cruelty and unfairness. It was crying for justice. And then that Hebrew writer over in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, talks about Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word, a better word that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood cries out, Justice! Give me justice! The blood of Christ cries out, What word? What is that better word? Justified. 
justification, that Jesus becomes the greater Abel whose blood does not cry out for justice, but Christ justified for people of faith. And that story continues in Genesis chapter 12 with God calling Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees to go to a land that God would show him on the other side of the great desert. And it's a long journey and it's fraught with danger and, and Abraham doesn't make quite as, as direct a route as God would have him, but he gets there. But there's an even longer one. Abraham makes a long journey, but there's an even longer one. In the book of Hebrews chapter 10, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for Me. With burnt offering and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about Me in the scroll, I have come to do Your will, My God. And what that Hebrew writer is trying to show us is that Jesus is the greater Abraham who leaves heaven and leaves that perfect harmony that He has with God the Father and God the Spirit to go to the place, that is earth, that God is going to send Him in order to bless the people of all of the world. But going back to the story of Abraham, you know that Abraham suffered over the lack of a son. He even tried to take matters into his own hands. Ishmael comes into the world that way. There's strife in his family. Every time that Abraham tries to do it by his own power, his own intelligence, things kind of end up going awry for him. And finally God shows up one day and says, you know what, you're going to have a son. He's finally granted through his wife Sarah a son by the name of Isaac. And then one day when Isaac is probably a young teenager, God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I need you to do something for me. I want you to offer up Isaac. That's Genesis chapter 22. And, it, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a poignant story when you read Genesis 22, the Akedah among the Hebrews. And Abraham, as he raises that knife, his hand is held. It's kept by an angel of God from sacrificing his only son. And God says to him in Genesis 22, verse 12, Now I know that you fear God because you've not withheld from me your son, your only son. And you know the story of the cross? where Jesus is the greater Isaac, who is not nearly offered on the mount of God, but was sacrificed for the sins of the world. And now we stand as we look at that cross and we say to God, now we know that You love us because You didn't withhold Your Son, Your only begotten Son, Your only Son from us. And then there's Joseph, one of Isaac's sons, Joseph, you know the story of the multicolored, technicolor coat that he wears, a sign of his father's favor. He's not a favorite one among his brothers. He's sold into slavery by those brothers. Actually, they want to kill him. That's how, low regard, how much low regard they had for him. But one of the brothers says, you know what, let's not kill him. That would kill our father. Let's just sell him into slavery. And Joseph lives great periods of his life, that early life, as a victim of much injustice. And you know the story that just about the time that it looks like something good's going to happen for Joseph, a bad thing takes place, or he's forgotten, or somebody lies about him, or he's, 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 uh, he's unfairly accused and, and wrongly accused of something. But all the way, he keeps his eyes on God. And in time, he rises to the right hand of Pharaoh. And you know the story about the famine and the dreams of Pharaoh and all these kinds of things. And then all of a sudden, there are all these people that are arriving in Egypt. And lo and behold, his own family, these brothers, the same family that betrayed him, 
and sold him off. Now come to him to be saved. And save them he does. And as we look at the, the, the ministry of Christ and the work of Christ, all over the New Testament, what he does through the crucifixion, he is dying on the cross for us. Even those of us who betrayed him, Jesus is the greater Joseph who goes to the right hand of God and who forgives the ones who betrayed him in order to save them. In Exodus chapter 12, Moses has been sent to Egypt. He grew up in Egypt. Flees. He's in exile in the desert of Midian for a lot of years, for 40 years. And by the time we get to Exodus chapter 12, Moses is being sent back to Egypt to free the people of Joseph who are now enslaved after many generations have passed. And there are all of these plagues that come at the hand of God to try to get Pharaoh, not only to let the people go, but to come to faith. And what's the last one? What's the last plague, church? Death of the firstborn. Death of the firstborn. And you remember the instructions that God gave to the people of Israel in the land of Goshen through Moses that they were to take a lamb and they were to sacrifice that lamb and they were to take the blood of that lamb and to sprinkle it on the door frame. And when the angel of death came by to claim the firstborn, he would see the blood of the lamb and would pass by onto, into that night of darkness. It's a horrible nightmare of a story. And centuries later, there's this fellow that looks like Elijah that sees Jesus walking by and John the Baptist with his disciples. People that he's been calling into repentance and, and to get their heart right because the Messiah is coming. He says, that one, look, and behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so Jesus is that greater Lamb who takes away sin and the sting of, of death from all of those people that would have faith in Him. And later in the book of Exodus, Moses helps mediate a covenant between God and His people there at Mount Sinai. You know that story. Centuries later, on the night that Jesus is betrayed, He's eating that Passover, that last meal with His disciples. And He says, this blood represents a new covenant. My blood, this fruit of the vine, represents a new covenant that's being established with you. That's Mark chapter 14. And then some decades later, the writer in Hebrews chapter 8 says, in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which He is a mediator. He is, it is, uh, that He is a mediator superior to the old one since the new covenant is established on better promises. And what that Hebrew writer is trying to tell those people that are reading that letter and are trying to decipher his words and to understand the difference between the the, the, the life that they have with Christ and going back to that, that, that time of the law and that time of the Old Covenant is to understand that Jesus is that greater Moses. And He's the greater Moses because His covenant is superior. And while they're wandering around in the desert, those people over there in Exodus, the people begin to complain about thirst. And you know there's no water fountains out in the middle of the desert. And the complaints reach the ear of Moses and Moses takes his, his staff to a rock and he strikes that rock and water pours out of that, of that rock for all of the people to drink to the, to the point that they're satisfied. And then over there in John chapter 4, Jesus meets this woman at a well. A Samaritan woman, a woman that's kind of messed up on a relationship with men who's thirsty in the middle of the day, has gone to draw water at a well near the village of Sychar. 
And Jesus asks her for a drink of water, and she says, You, a Jew, and a man are asking me in public, a woman and a Samaritan, for a drink of water. And Jesus tells that woman that He can offer her something that her thirsty soul needs, living water. And what we see is that Jesus is the greater rock that when struck by the rod of justice, issues forth living water. Everyone's familiar with the story of King David. David rises to prominence because he slays the giant Goliath with a sling. It is that giant, that Philistine giant by the name of Goliath, nine feet, six inches tall, that is shouting out every morning disdain towards God and God's people. Who among the Israelites are going to come and fight me? And David hears that one morning as he goes out with some food that his father has sent with him to give to his brothers and to the king. And he hears it and he goes, who is going to fight this giant? And you know the story. He goes out there with these three smooth stones that he found in a, in a brook. And he has his sling and he slays that Goliath. He slays that giant. But because of the cross of Jesus, Jesus becomes that greater David who slays the one giant who can slay us for all of eternity. And his victory becomes our victory even though we didn't lift a stone except to have faith in Him and and what it is that He accomplished in His cross. And then later in the Old Testament, there's this woman by the name of Esther who is so beautiful and so winsome that the king wants her into his, even though she's Jewish, to bring her into his his harem, into his palace. And it's this Esther when she finds out and her, 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 her uncle finds out about this plot to destroy the Jews who risks the loss of her earthly place in the palace in order to save her people from death. And it's the same Jesus who is the greater Esther who risked his heavenly palace in order to save his people. Then over there in those prophets, there's that prophet by the name of Jonah. And Jonah, Jonah, Jonah. Jonah is the prophet who runs away from God. Prophets are not supposed to do that. Prophets are supposed to go to the place that God shows them and tells them uh, the, the words to speak and they're to speak it. But Jonah is the prophet that runs away from God because he doesn't want to go to Nineveh And so he goes down to Tarshish, he gets on a boat, and he's going the opposite direction of Nineveh. And the Lord sends this gigantic storm. And you remember the story, the the sailors are all afraid, the captain's afraid, they find Jonah sleeping in the bottom of the boat. They know he's the reason that there's a problem out there on the sea, why there's a storm that they're about to go down in that boat in. And Jonah says, you know what you need to do? You need to throw me into this storm that threatens to destroy all of us, and you'll be saved. And Jesus becomes the greater Jonah who is tossed into the storm for us in order to bring us the peace that passes understanding. Does not seeing Jesus as the central character of the Bible cause your heart to burn? When He says, I'm the bread of life, He is the greater manna. He is, you know, in in seven days or six days, God created the heavens and the earth. And when He says, I am the light, He is a greater light than the sun that they saw every day. I mean, everywhere you look in the Bible, from Genesis to the maps, you're going to find Jesus being spoken of. He is the core character. He's the central character. It is all about Him. And when we press our minds into that text on a daily basis, and we see it for what it is, and the the Scriptures are opened up to us so that we find ourselves being drawn closer and closer and closer to Him, then our hearts begin to burn then our hearts begin to burn in in such a way that we're never the same. You hear me talk about, you know, there are times when when, when we meditate and we really open our minds up and and gnaw 
on, on Scripture in such a way that it really gets down inside of us and we understand what it is that Jesus did on the cross, what He suffered for us, what He gave up and came to in order to save us, and why He did it, because of the love for us, that somehow all that information, when it gets down onto the inside of us, and it triggers, triggers that, 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 uh, that emotion on the inside of us, we melt. We melt right down. Because our hearts are burning. Just like those guys in that seven-mile stretch from Jerusalem to Emmaus. I want our church to know Jesus like that. I want our church, when we open up God's Word, to anticipate that on every page is going to be an opportunity for us to be drawn closer to God and to see Christ more clearly. That we are going to know the facts, we're going to know the doctrines, we're going to know the historical facts, we're going to know chronologies, we're going to know names, we're going to recognize people, we're going to recognize events, but all of that in an effort to know Him better and to understand His mission and how it impacts us. He's the central character. Now, maybe one of the reasons that your heart does not burn is because you've never been formally introduced to Him. That by becoming His, his, his follower, His disciple, by, by confessing the fact that your life is pretty much been listening to that serpent been listening to that evil one, to be listening to all of those voices that would draw you away from Him and, and drive you even more deeply into your own ego and into your own self-centeredness. And all that has gotten you is a pretty rough life without any hope and without any help and without any confidence and without any reassurances that things will ever be different or even better. What Jesus is offering is a water that quenches the inner desert. What Jesus offers is a, not just a, a, a new leaf, turning over a new leaf. It's not just a new leaf. He's offering you a new life. What He's offering you is the chance to have God's Spirit inside of you and to transform you in such a way and to fill you with blessing that even though you go through sometimes pretty rough patches of road and you go through pretty tragic times and you suffer some in this life it's not with despair and it's not without hope and it's not with an anguish that drops you into the fetal position because of of the relationship that you have with him and you confess that that sin has gotten you nowhere and you confess that he is lord that he is the king which is what the bible says about him all over the pages of of from genesis to revelation that He is the King. He is the Creator. He is the Master. And then you're baptized into His death, burial, and resurrection. And your sins are washed away. And God puts that Spirit inside of you to help you in your, your process of being transformed into the likeness of Jesus. And that fruit of the Spirit being developed in your life. When you begin to think about that is what He offers. Why would, why would you not accept that today? A different kind of a life, a different paradigm, a different perspective, a different way of living, a different power source, a different set of promises on which to base your life. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. Some of our shepherds are going to be down here at the front, our spiritual leaders of our church family. If in any way we can help connect you to the central character of the Bible, who is Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, the Word incarnate, the Word become flesh, God become flesh then we want you to come down to the front and talk to these shepherds as we stand and praise God together. Heavenly Father.